So as Michael reminded us this morning, <clears throat> earlier, we are in our Christmas series right now. This is our second message this year. And uh, we shared last week that one of our goals and one of our attempts this year has been to look at the New Testament and determine or consider, is the Christmas story at some level revealed in other books of the New Testament in addition to Matthew and Luke's Gospels. You all know that Matthew and Luke give us the most comprehensive information about the Christmas story. Matthew tells us about the Magi and uh, King Herod and Jesus' lineage and things like that, right? Luke uh, tells us about there not being any room at the inn, the angel appearing to the shepherds, and so on and so forth. Those two guys give us the most information specifically about Jesus' birth. But, last week, Michael revealed that there are passages in the New Testament where some of the authors have revealed the need for Jesus to come in the flesh, which is the Christmas story. And Michael shared with us that Jesus came in the flesh, had to come in the flesh, to redeem us from the law. And he highlighted that not only did Jesus redeem us from the law, the consequences and the curse of not being able to keep it, and the condemnation that comes with transgressing God's law, but Jesus also fulfilled the law in himself on our behalf. And we're going to see something similar to that again this morning. And you've heard us speak on that kind of principle. And when I say that principle, I mean that God is so gracious that he not only extends mercy to us, but then he is gracious as well. He goes above and beyond the call of duty. See, he could have just canceled out the consequences for transgressing the law, right? He could have just canceled condemnation, which he certainly did. But then he goes a step further and he actually fulfills the law himself on our behalf. And so we're going to see an aspect of God's mercy this morning as well. And then God going above and beyond the call in an act of grace for us. And so this morning what we're going to look at is that Jesus had to come in the flesh to rescue us from darkness. Jesus had to come in the flesh to rescue us from darkness. We're going to spend a majority of our time this morning in uh, John's text. We're going to look at the Gospel of John first, and then we're going to look at 1 John a little bit later. And we're going to spend a bulk of our time there in his writings. And so if you're going to take some notes, or if you just kind of want to understand and know the structure of what we're going to do this morning, I said as an umbrella sort of subject matter, We're going to say that Jesus came in the flesh to rescue us from darkness. But under that, I'm going to break this down into like three sections. The first is going to be that darkness cannot hide the light of life. Darkness cannot hide the light of life. The second section we'll consider this morning is that Jesus' rescue from darkness means fellowship and peace with God. When Jesus rescues us from darkness, it means fellowship and peace with God. And then the third section is going to be that Jesus' rescue from darkness means walking as children of light. Jesus' rescue from darkness also means walking as children of life. So let's look at this first section this morning, if you would. Darkness cannot hide the light of life. Turn to John, the Gospel of John. 
Chapter 1, right out of the gate. And we're going to see the way John starts his gospel. And I mentioned that Matthew and Luke give us the most comprehensive details about the Christmas story. And they begin their record of Jesus' life with, of course, the lineage and um, when he comes incarnate. John begins his story of the incarnate Jesus going back to him being in the beginning, before creation. Look at this. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So we'll stop there for just a second. But we'll keep going. He says, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. How many times have we said light so far? You think John's making a point here? There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. But did you notice in verse 5 there? He says that the darkness could not comprehend or overcome. So we're going to spend some time talking about that for a minute. But before we do that, look at verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. What a tongue twister, huh? But John clearly, clearly wants to make his audience understand that Jesus is God incarnate. God in the flesh. God who existed outside of everything that he has created first and foremost. He is external to his creation, yet chose to insert himself into that which he created. He was in the beginning, and he was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's being very, very intentional about hammering this point home. And now I think about our created world and, and all the things that we think that we're so creative at, right? And God has given us the gift of creativity. That's something that comes from Him. But sometimes, I think we maybe make too much of ourselves. Because, you know, we're really just working with that which He already created for us. I remember a, a radio station used to have a, an ad that said, you know, we may not play your favorite song every time, but the songs we do play share a lot of the same chords as your favorite song. <laughs> and I always thought that was kind of interesting because doesn't that just exemplify that you know, the creator of the universe has given us 
everything, and we're just simply arranging things. We're taking chords and notes and music and arranging them in new and different ways. Architecture is that way, right? They're, we're taking things and principles and designs and details, and we're arranging them in certain ways. When we were... I don't remember what our message was a few months ago, but I gave this, this illustration where I talked about the scientists who felt that they had now been able to create humankind. And they go to God and they say, God, you know, uh, we know how to make humans now too. God says, oh really? Why don't you uh, show me? So they bend over to start picking up some dirt just the way God did. He goes, oh no, 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 no. Go get your own dirt. (laughs) John here is reminding us that Jesus is external to his creation. He is preeminent. And he has inserted himself. But John also tells us, and I hinted at this earlier, in verse 4 and 5, there's a dilemma of sorts. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now when I say that there was a dilemma of sorts, what John is revealing for us is that there's darkness in this world, isn't there? And so he's saying that the creator who created everything has inserted himself into the story of redemption, into that which he created. And there was darkness, but the darkness could not comprehend or could not overcome. That's a very real truth for all of us today. We see it firsthand all the time, don't we? That there's darkness all around us. Keep your finger in John and turn to Romans, if you would. Turn to Romans Chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18 and we'll just go to verse 21. Paul says this about the world we live. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. And watch this. And their foolish heart was darkened. Turn back to John. So Paul there tells us that our bent, our default, outside of Christ Jesus, outside of salvation, is that of darkness. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness and our heart becomes darkened. Jackie and I had a conversation after church last week and we were, we were sort of commiserating, if you will, about the behavior that we see from non-believers. And I had expressed, I said, I actually have a lot more grace for non-believers because I understand that they are incapable of understanding and behaving in the, the ways that saved people should. But I tell you what, you get me behind closed doors and, and, and have to deal with believers who are not walking and living according to Christ, who are not walking the walk. Oh boy, I'm critical. I am mean. And you will hear, uh, you know, from me. But I understand that the rest of the world that's unsaved, 
is operating in darkness. And I get that they are incapable of exercising the principles of God because they're veiled. But John says that the darkness cannot comprehend, cannot overcome the light, the light which is the light of men. You know, what's interesting here is this word there. How many of your translations say comprehend? Right there in verse 5. Okay? Anybody have um, overtake, overcome as a, as a translation? I'm just going to simply say this. Those are both very real meanings and, and uh, definitions for that word there. And as you've heard us share from the pulpit before, context typically determines which meaning you use. And actually, I believe that both of these meanings work pretty well. So I'm not going to stand here and say that I think it should be one or the other. I think they both work very well. The first definition is that darkness, um, it, it, it can lay a hold or seize or grasp or overtake to overpower or obtain control. That would be one definition. Another definition is comprehend with the mind or to recognize and understand. That would be the second definition. I think both of those probably work here. In other words, one consideration, the darkness could not overpower or stop Jesus from bringing life into the world which he created. Sin could not overpower Jesus. The grave could not contain him. At no point in God's redemptive plan could darkness thwart what God had intended to do to redeem us. So I don't believe that darkness could ever overcome, overpower, control the light of the world. A second aspect, the darkness did not understand or comprehend what Jesus came to do. Look at verses 10 and 13. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him or understand or comprehend him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him. So we might say that another perfectly acceptable translation to that word in verse 5 is that the world did not comprehend, did not understand, did not recognize, did not know Jesus and the very thing that he came to do. Now, John says all this, and then he says in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Many, many years ago, I had a fun conversation with Steve Schmeckel. And he said, have you ever seen the message translation for verse 14? The message translation literally says that God moved into the neighborhood. (laughs) And we just joked about that. We thought, man, I mean, it works, but boy, that sure is boiling down something maybe too far. But isn't it a beautiful truth that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us? Dwelt among that which he created. Matthew, you'll, this should resonate with you. C.S. Lewis talks 
about how if Hamlet were to ever meet Shakespeare, it would require Shakespeare writing himself into the story. Hamlet is the created being of the narrative. Shakespeare is the author. Hamlet can't possibly know Shakespeare unless Shakespeare personally writes and scripts himself into the text. Isn't that what Jesus has done? Jesus, God is external from his creation. We can't know him except for the fact that he has revealed himself through his creation, as Romans says, but also that he has chosen to insert himself into the narrative, which is the story of himself and what he has come to do to redeem us back. He's the author, and we know him because he has become flesh and dwelt among us. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. Jesus came in the flesh, and darkness could not hide his light. Now, next thing we'll look at. Turn to 1 John, if you would, please. 1 John. What John is going to tell us in 1 John now is that as Jesus is is becoming flesh and rescuing us from darkness, we're going to see that this also results or means fellowship and peace with God. It means fellowship and peace with God, according to John. In 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, John says this, What was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and hear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Did you see another theme? Beheld, heard, seen, proclaimed to you. John begins this letter to his audience by providing three proofs that Jesus came in the flesh. Did you see that? In verse 1, he says, What we have heard. In other words, John's telling his readers and his audience, we've seen the physical Jesus. We've seen God in the flesh and do not try to tell us otherwise. We have heard his human voice that was like ours. We've heard him speak on the Jordan River on the banks of the Sea of Galilee and preach to the masses. Well, We heard him speak in the countryside and in the city and the temple courts. We heard his voice cast out demons, calm the storm, heal the lame. We heard his voice call Lazarus out of the tomb. Lazarus, come out. I think John's thinking, we heard his voice when he called each one of us and said, come, I will make you fishers of men. Come follow me. So John wants his audience to know, oh, Jesus came in the flesh. We heard his voice firsthand. We were there. But the second proof he gives, he says, we've seen with our own eyes too. We saw him baptized and we saw the Spirit descend on him like a dove. We saw him transfigured on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. We 
saw him pull a coin from the mouth of a fish, and we saw him walk on water. We saw him physically hanging on a cross between two others. We saw that with our own eyes. Don't tell us, don't tell me, Jesus didn't come in the flesh. The third proof he gives is, our hands beheld him. Mary gave birth to a physical baby. She had birth pains like every mother does, and she held her baby in her own arms. John's thinking, we walked and we talked with him daily. We passed out the food in our own hands that he multiplied with his hands. We distributed to the 5,000, the 25,000 probably, that he had just multiplied. We saw, we saw Simon of Cyrene carry that cross for Jesus. A physical cross. Because Jesus was physically real. We felt him wash our own feet in that upper room the night he was put on trial. Thomas got to touch the holes as proof. And so why does John feel the need to reiterate this and say over and over again that we've seen, we've beheld, we've touched, we've heard? Because in that day, the congregation that John was writing to was falling victim to false teachers. They were falling victim to those who were saying, we're not really sure and we're not really on board with God becoming flesh. We're not really sure that Jesus was real. And John has to refute that and correct that. And, and they, they went on. These false teachers went on to even claim that a Messiah, a Savior, wasn't really necessary. That sin wasn't necessarily a real thing. Or even so far as to say that they didn't sin. And they didn't struggle with sin. And you see the fabric of John's letter where he's addressing that false, false misunderstanding that anybody is without sin or could claim that they don't have sin. He says, you make God out to be a liar when you do that. And so it's important for John to just hit these guys right away, out of the gates, to let them know what you've been hearing from those false teachers are lies. Jesus came in the flesh. He dwelt among us. We saw him, we heard him, we touched him. And the important thing is that it is only through Jesus' blood that any can be cleansed and washed of sin. So anybody who comes with some other gospel and says that this is a means to God, which is likely what false teachers were also saying, are lying. On Thanksgiving morning, our family had a chance to go for a walk, a run, just a recreational opportunity to go play some pickleball with um, Sayer's friend's family. And I'm walking with um, the father. He and I are having a nice conversation on our own, and we get to talking about golf a little bit. And uh, we're talking about uh, 
country club memberships and things like that. And I'm thinking, I don't have the funds to do something like that. But he begins to share with me that um, he would like to reactivate his golf membership at the club where he's got a social membership. And he says, but the initiation fee is $40,000. Just the initiation fee. So he says, he goes, I'm already a social member. I used to have a golf membership. Maybe there's a way that I can convince management to just let me kind of slide back in. Now, this isn't going to happen, of course, but my point in sharing this was it reminded me that if anybody else were to find out about that, that would create a problem for management, right? If anybody were to be able to become a member through some other means, beyond that which everybody else has a standard, that would be a problem. John is saying the same to his audience. He's saying... Anybody who thinks that they can come to God, that they can be cleansed, that they can be made sinless and reconciled and have a peace and a fellowship with God through any other means other than the blood of Christ is sorely, sorely mistaken. Now, something that I think is kind of interesting. We said that part of our goal is to see if other New Testament passages and authors... um, elude to the Christmas story. I think verse 2 here is the Christmas message. I think it's the Christmas message in disguise. Watch this. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. You know what Matthew says about the Christmas story when he quotes an Old Testament passage? Matthew 1.23 Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name, what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isn't that what John just said at the beginning of his letter in verse 2? That the, the life was manifest and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was what manifest to us. The prophecy was, the virgin shall be with a child. He shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with you. God with us. This is the Christmas story right here. John says, he was manifest to us. He was God with us. Look at verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You know what Luke says? Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. The angel announces, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. Isn't that what John just said? That God has manifested himself to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also. That you also may have what? Have fellowship with us and, by extension, indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, when the angel announces peace among men, peace on earth, the angel is referring to the fact that in our sin, we are enemies with God. And God has sought fit to come down to earth 
to reconcile us so that we would no longer be enemies. This isn't peace like wars are going to stop. This is peace because God has come to you to make amends that you can't do on your own. And John says, that which was manifest, God in the flesh that we had beheld, that we saw, that we smelled, we, we heard, he was manifest and he granted us fellowship with God the Father and in his Son, Jesus Christ. Verses 2 and 3 right here is a Christmas message. Jesus said, Peace I give to you, but not the peace of the world. Right? Romans 5.10 For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? So, Romans there, Paul says that we were once enemies with God. In Acts chapter 26, Paul was testifying before the courts and he says, God had given him the ministry of sharing the gospel so humanity can be rescued from the dominion of Satan. In Colossians 1.13, we just recently finished our study of Colossians, says he delivered or rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son, kingdom of light. And so the angel proclaimed that Jesus coming in the flesh would bring peace between God and humanity. Here in 1 John, we see the same Christmas message repeated, that Jesus' flesh means fellowship or peace with God. Now the last section this morning. Rescue from darkness means walking as children of light. We're going to be in 1 John for a moment. And 1 John doesn't use the term children of light. We're going to see that in Ephesians. But John does call us to walk accordingly. Look at verses 5 through 7 in 1 John. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So John says that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. But if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet continue to intentionally live a lifestyle of sin, we're walking in darkness and we're making God out to be a liar. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, he says that his blood cleanses us from all sin. I've uh, had the privilege of implanting what Matthew calls earworms for him. We were uh, at Pagah a couple weeks ago and uh, I sent him a text of a little song lyric and he, and he replied and said, thanks for the earworm. Now he's got that running through his head. Does anybody have an earworm? I did the same thing to Susan this morning before coming here after reading this passage, verses 5 through 7. You got it. It's a generational reference. DC Talk. Anybody remember DC Talk? Be in the light? What did you say? Yes. I want to be in the light as you are in the light. Anyway, you're welcome. You're welcome for that if, you're now, if you know that song and you're now rehearsing that in your head. 
Jesus had to come in the flesh so his blood could cleanse us from all sin. We have no hope of walking in the light, as John says, apart from Jesus' blood. We're incapable of it. We can't do it. We cannot walk in the light, in his commands, in ways that honor and please God, without being cleansed in the blood of Jesus. And the only way that could happen was for Jesus to come in the flesh. Now, turn to the Gospel of John, if you would please. Our last couple of passages for this morning. We've got two more. The Gospel of John, chapter 3. Chapter 3, look at verse 19. And this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world, and men, what? Loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, and his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So it starts out pretty rough. And it starts out as a reminder that we all, we all prior to salvation in Christ Jesus, loved the darkness. And there's still some times now, every once in a while, somebody rubs you the wrong way and you love the darkness a little bit, don't you? I do. But it ends well because Jesus says that But he who practices the truth comes to the light, the light of men, the light of life that he offers, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Evil loves darkness. What is done in the dark, he says, will eventually be exposed by the light. Anybody ever seen how contractors will check out drywall work? You know, drywallers will hang the panels and the boards and they'll tape and they'll mud and they'll go and patch imperfections here and there. And oftentimes what a contractor will do is come along with a real bright light. A bright light and they'll kind of shine it on the wall and kind of just do one of these because just looking at this with naked eyes right now looks good, looks straight, looks finished. But you shine a bright light on that, and all of a sudden you start to see some waves, some imperfections, some spots. Shining the light on that wall reveals mistakes, imperfections. John says, or Jesus says, that evil deeds get exposed by the light. Our last passage for this morning. Turn to Ephesians, chapter 5. Ephesians, chapter 5. I said that John didn't specifically use the term children of light. He encouraged his audience to walk in the light and 
related that to being washed and cleansed in the blood of Jesus. But here Paul does use this term, children of light, where we get this third section, which is rescue from darkness means walking as children of light. Look at chapter 5 of Ephesians, beginning in verse 8. How about 7? Therefore do not be partakers with them. Who? With the unsaved who still practice evil deeds in darkness. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And so therefore, he says, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the un fruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is a disgraceful for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore be careful how you Walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So Paul reminds us that we were formerly in darkness, but now we are children in the light of the Lord. Because Jesus came in flesh, we get to be called children of light. And Paul says, but walk that way. Live that way. And he, he gives two sort of primary commands. He gives many others that are somewhat participle. But he says, walk as children of the light, trying to learn what pleases the Lord. We said this earlier. This is impossible for an unbeliever. But this is an expectation that God has as children of light for us. You know, an unbeliever can read the word and, and hear sort of intellectually what pleases God. But they can't embrace it in their heart apart from the blood of Jesus. But children of the light are to embrace the heart and the mind of God. God has not made his will mysterious. He's given us his Holy Spirit to empower us to walk in the ways that honor and glorify him. He isn't tricky about this. We can know what he is expecting of us. And the second thing he says, among many others, but do not participate in evil deeds of darkness. As children of light, we are called to even expose the deeds of darkness. You know, sometimes this simply just happens by being yourself. Anybody ever been in a situation where there was a lot of stuff going on that was completely antithetical to the character of God? But because you are washed in the blood and because of you are who you are in Christ Jesus, just your presence there had an effect. In a way, you became that light that was shining on the imperfect drywall of others. I've had moments like that, not all the time, but every once in a while where somebody chose to do something different, live, behave, operate, make a different decision because I was just simply there being myself. I didn't have to call them out, didn't have to call them to the carpet, rebuke them or anything like that. Just simply the presence of the Holy Spirit in me 
impacted and was perceived by those who were otherwise ready for evil deeds and darkness. And of course, we are to call sin, sin at times, and we are to expose it, whether passively or actively, as the Lord leads. And so, as we pull this together, Jesus came in the flesh so we could become children of the light and walk in ways that honor God. Isn't this wonderful that God has inserted himself into his own story of redemption? That he became flesh so that we could be reconciled back to him? Isn't it wonderful that God didn't simply just rescue us from darkness, but he has also empowered us to walk in the light. I mentioned earlier when we first started that so often we see God's mercy and we see it followed up with his grace that goes above and beyond anything we could possibly imagine or anything that he had to do. He doesn't have to do any of it in the first place. So he not only has rescued us from darkness and removed the condemnation, the consequences of loving the darkness, of practicing evil deeds, but he has also empowered us to walk in the light and walk in ways which do honor and glorify him. And of course, praise be to God that while we were enemies, it pleased him him to come in the flesh and reconcile us so that we might be restored perfectly fellowship and have peace with him. Isn't that wonderful? It pleased him to become lowly, to leave his heavenly throne, to be like us because the end goal was that we would have fellowship with God and no longer be called enemies. That's wonderful. Amen?